Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today, someone who changed my life through this genre, and I'm sure many, many other people out there, in celebration of his new ecstatic piece imprint on Omnibus Press, Thurston fucking more of the band Sonic Youth, of Thurston Moore Solo, of The Coachman, of um, Society's Ill, of, uh, I think he played with Gigi Allen for one show too. Anyway, more on that in a second. This is a huge episode, everyone. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to Turned Out a Punk podcast at gmail.com and write an email that will go to my brother, Tristan Abraham, who is the show producer, also the runner of various other turned out of punk social media platforms, I guess, for lack of a better word. There's an Instagram page. There's a Facebook page. You can follow all of that at turned out a punk or slash turned out a punk or whatever you have to do. But you can write an email though at turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com. There is also uh, finding me on social media at left for Damien. That's another way to get in touch with the show. The best way to support the show is by telling all your friends, everyone, you know, rating it, writing a review for it on your podcast platform, of choice. And uh, speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving, generous support of the fine folks at Vans who said, we don't want you to do this out of your pocket anymore. Damien, uh, we just want you to do your show. Pick who you want to get. Get the guests you want to get. So I thank him for that. Thank you, Vans. And uh, that's it. On to today's show. Today on the show, Thurston more from the band Sonic Youth. Now, I've never really gone into my whole detailed journey on this podcast, but the band that was really the one that, that got it all going for me was Sonic Youth. I met a kid named Nick, who was a huge Sonic Youth fan, hit me to Sonic Youth, and it was off to the races from there. I didn't even like Nirvana at the time. I got into Nirvana through Sonic Youth. That was, and it wasn't because I was like so early to it. It was because I didn't get Nirvana, but Sonic Youth I got. And Sonic Youth was a gateway for me, you know, through hardcore. They covered Nick Fit. They covered crime. They were like a utility knife for me, you know, and understanding this whole new world that I was kind of obsessed with. And now, all these years later, to sit down and talk to Thurston Moore. Now, I've run into Thurston Moore a couple times over the years. Some were better than others. Uh, we will go into all that, I think, in future episodes. But I, one thing that has always remained is the fact that I've looked up to this guy as a record collector, as someone who made music, and 
Uh, you know what? You forget sometimes that this guy was also there at Ground Zero for punk rock and really got to see the whole evolution in the epicenter for it, like New York City. He's watching hardcore happen. He's watching No Wave happen. And, of course, he's watching punk happen. So to have him here and to get to punish him, oh, that is that is a big prize for me. But I, I once again have to say huge thank you to Matthew O'Donohue over at Omnibus Press, where Thurston Moore has now started this ecstatic piece library imprint. They put out a bunch of stuff so far, including a Thurston Moore book, which I'm working my way through. Don't worry. So far, there's not a lot of conflicts in the information in this podcast and this book. You know, this podcast tends to go to the nerdier side of everything. Uh, they've also put out, though, the Death Archives, which is an incredible book of the Mayhem Archives from 84 to 94. Uh, Necro Butcher was involved in that. Um, Thurston Moore wrote the afterword for it. And they've also put out this fantastic, like, exact replica reissue of Tony D's infamous, famous, incredible ripped and torn fanzine, which is one of the first Scottish punk fanzines ever. You know, 77, I think they could have started, 78. This book, 77. This book is incredible, though. It, it's the exact repros. This is, you know, it shows you, like, this is being done by people that collect records and zines and books and, and are, are general nerds, you know? And I think you will hear that on this podcast. So on to the show today. This is a good one. We get into some nerdy, nerdy territory. Uh, I, yeah, this is a huge thrill for me to get to do, as you can hear it in my voice. I'm pretty, pretty excited about this podcast, uh, and I've been really excited for everyone to get to hear it. There will be, of course, you know, hopefully other parts in the future, but anyway, I do have a note. At one point in the podcast, Thurston had to jump off the call, comes back on the call, and we are talking about Jonah. So when you're thrust into that conversation about Jonah, you know, Jonah from Fucked Up Career Suicide, it's someone you got to talk about. And so I could have added that out, but I decided to leave that in, that conversation about Jonah. Uh, and why he rules, because he does rule. And Thurston knows that, too. Um, and I think that's it for notes. There's a little bit of audio stuff towards the end, but I right, sure you can get through it. This is a good one. I'm not going to blather on anymore. Everyone, please sit back, relax, and enjoy Thurston Moore on Turned Out a Punk. Thurston, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're more than welcome, Damien. Well, as I was just telling you off the air, normally this is said, it's all for you, Damien, but it's all for you, Thurston. This whole thing, oh. I feel, has been building up to you coming on this show in some way. Oh, right on, man. Um, well, I've, been, you know, I've been looking forward to it. Well, that is that is a big thrill to hear because I can tell you that this is – you're the guy that got me into this whole thing. So uh, I've, I've been waiting a long time to ask you a lot of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I got to start them off the way I start them all off, which is Thurston. How'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Man, I feel like I was always into punk. You know, in the early seventies, I, I really responded to like like weirdo outsider rock and roll. I mean, mm -hmm. I loved all kinds of rock and roll music. I had an older brother. You know, I still do have an older brother. <laughs> He's five years older. But he, you know, he was the you know he was bringing in. You know, like the heavy '60s stuff into the house, Hendrix and and Beatles and Cream and whatever. And I, you know, it was just like really part of our our 
environment was with rock and roll and um and his hippie friends coming in and introducing jefferson airplane and all this, whatever and all this kind of stuff but i started really responding pretty quickly to things that were more raw and primal and kind of just from the margins you know the first record that came into our house in six in 64 around with my brother brought in the first rock and roll record in our house was was louis louis by the kingsman and then in a way Louis Louis is kind of like by the Kingsmen. It's kind of like the Ur text of punk in a way. It was like kind of like you know, it was like these Pacific Northwest teens. Well, they weren't probably teens; they're probably <laughs> in their early twenties. But making like this really sort of like super immediate kind of record that was just all about like you know, standing on the corner smoking cigs and and like you know looking for, you know looking for action. Mm-hmm. And that was just kind of you know, but but at the same time, kind of bored. And just in hearing the mistake in that record, you know, when when the singer sort of comes in and then sort of stops and they leave it in the <laughs> they leave it on the record, all these things like you know to me were just like totally beautiful. Yeah. So that was the beginning. But you know, but later on in the into the early seventies, you know, I was born in fifty eight, so I'm ten and sixty eight, and I'm sort of like getting, you know, I'm like thirteen, fourteen, early seventies. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I really sort of see, you know, I really. I'm very curious about David Bowie when I start seeing pictures of that. Like, what is that? Like, who's that guy? I'm very interested in Captain Beefheart. Like, what's going on there? And I'm the thing is, it's like just buying all the magazines that you can find. Like, just not only Rolling Stone, which is like really heavy at that time, but Circus Magazine, Hit Parader Magazine, and then Rock Scene Magazine comes in out of New York. Uh, Cream coming out of Detroit. And when you can find these magazines, you know, we're just like, you know, would gobble them up. And that's when I started seeing images of of things like Iggy, you know. And what the first image I saw of Iggy was in a Cream magazine of him standing on the hands of the audience, pointing spray painted silver. And I was like, what? Like, what does that sound like? What, yeah. what could that be? Right. <laughs> Same with Beefheart. Like seeing a mm-hmm. picture of Beefheart with his top hat and his goatee, and like, like, what does that guy sound like? The th- lucky thing about being in the USA at that time was like those records were super unpopular and they would be they would get um you know they they would become cutouts you know mm-hmm. they were discounted immediately and they would end up in the Woolworths and the and the in, you know the shopping mall stores for nothing for like 49 cents you know that's what i remember like so i would always and i had no money so i would look in the 49 cent bin i'm not going to buy abbey road for like 3.99 i'm going to buy like you know i'm going to buy um Captain Beefheart, the Spotlight Kid, for forty nine cents, and that's what I always remember. Where I got my education was like these records that nobody wanted, that you know, that couldn't sell, and you. A lot of them were was was bunk, but then there would be things like, you know, Cans Egg Bamyasi that United Arts put out, like or uh, you know the Amon Duel uh, two record that you would find for forty nine cents, and the first Stooges record. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing the first Stooges record like in multiple, like in like a Woolworths, you know, with the corner cut off and like forty nine cents. Nobody's gonna nobody wants this thing. This is like, you know, this is utter, utter, utter trash. It was that and, much uh, of a success when it came out, I guess. Yeah. And so this is like 71, 72. And I'm like, and I was like, I'm going to, you know, and I used to look at the cover thing like, man, what, what is up with these guys? You know, <laughs> yeah. like just the way they looked, you know, that look on their face, you know, just like, and, uh, so I had processed, you know, some of these records, Beefheart and Cannon, they were just like weirdo records, but they were my records and mm-hmm. I liked them. And they, I knew that they were kind of super odd and, you know, but they were really formative for my, you know, m- whatever music that I would eventually make but the stooges record 
which I was very curious about. And I get it home, and I remember playing it and thinking, like, this is so monodynamic. I mean, it's just like it was completely, like, you know, sub-mental in a way. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I just, like, couldn't. I was like, wow. Like, you know, I was like, and you know, when you get to the end of side one and they do We, we Will Fall for, like, ten minutes, mm-hmm. you know, and just, like, what is, you know, what is that all about? And there's something so spooky and something raw. And it's just like those lyrics were just not, they were not um, flowery pop rock lyrics. You know, these, you know, these lyrics about like, you know, um, being not right. And like little, little doll, I can't forget standing, standing with your cigarette, smoking on your cigarette. And then like, you know, these, Nobody talk about cigarettes in, in music except for the Stooges, you know. It's like, wow, he's singing about cigarettes. Sometimes he's singing about a girl smoking a cigarette. That's like the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> you know? Like this is like there's nothing more cool than like seeing a girl smoking a cigarette. You know, that was like was like so I fell in love with these guys immediately. And I, and I would try to sort of turn the few friends I had, you know, around town that were I'd listen to records with onto these records and they were just like, No, man, you know. It's like this stuff sounds horrible, <laughs> you know. And I, you know, it was like, and I, they were really, you know, the, the thing is, you were supposed to be getting into Yes and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, mm-hmm. and you know these kind of these, these kind of sophisticated kind of bands, and I kind of understood that. And I remember like buying Yes songs that you know I was like I'm gonna get, I'm gonna go all the way here and buying <laughs> Yes songs, you know, triple album. You know, like, yes, like from beginning to end, like triple album. And I remember putting that on and thinking, like, I, I really have no time for this. You know, yeah. this is like, you know, it's like Rick Wakeman had whole, one whole side, you know, of, of keyboard, you know, soloing. And I was just like, I was like, and I, I would eventually just like take it off and like put the Stooges record back on. Like, yeah, this is more like, so that was like my introduction to punk, knowing that it was something that it was kind of, it was a friend, you know, it was like my, you know, this was like, you know, those records were like mine. And like, we kind of like, you know, I, I realized that I had to sort of sort of figure out who else does this appeal to, you know? And there, I, when I f- first, the first gigs I went to were kind of these arena gigs and they were really disappointing. It, Funnily enough, the first gig I saw was Rick Wakeman, you know, like doing his like <laughs> journey to the center of the earth tour. Yeah. And I sat there because I just wanted to go to a concert. And I sat there with like my friend and his older brother who scored the tickets thinking like, and this is really kind of like boring, but it's more interesting just sort of looking around the arena at all the hippies like doing whatever they were doing, you know. And then I saw a few other things. I saw Zappa and, and then I, I saw Peter Frampton and Jake Isles band getting a little better. It wasn't until I saw Kiss in Springfield, Massachusetts, where I was like, "That is how you're supposed to come out and kill on stage," you know. Like these, they were just like, they were superb, you know. They just like really came out and just like, "We're going to like blow your minds right now," and uh, but you know, I, I also knew that that was like sort of this kind of, um, you know, super rock and roll entertainment. I was way more into wanting to see the New York Dolls or something. I wanted to, I wanted to be like more like you know, in the pit with like the, just the trashy rock, you know, and there was before punk rock, you know, there was this thing in New York where they kind of referred to that street rock sound as street rock or like raunchy rock. There was a fanzine called raunchy rock. Actually, you would see like Wayne County on the cover of the dolls on the cover. I have one copy of it. I always like, like to find more copies of raunchy rock. What else would they, because obviously would it be like the fast 
or like what mm-hmm. that was i guess that the fast were definitely part of that yeah and, and uh the fast are like one of the most important bands in the new york scene such for a great sure. band yeah yeah and so that was like one of the first bands i, I started seeing regularly in new york was the fast it's, but I started. It took me a while to get get into the city because I yeah. was, you know, as soon as I got my driver's license, I had I found one friend in high school who came up to me and said, like, Patty Smith's playing at uh, in Westport, <laughs> Connecticut, you know, tonight. And I was like, he he's like, let's go. And I was just like, and I hardly knew this kid. And I, yeah. He was he. I could tell he was kind of like I would see him in school. I knew that he was kind of hip to like things like Roxy music and stuff like this. And so we commandeered a car from some other kid I knew. And we said, they take us to Westport, which is like an hour away. We just like whipped over there and we got tickets and we went in and we saw Patty Smith, like it was like late 75 or something. And um, it was totally like, great. You know, it was just like, she came out and like, leather jacket coming out and and starting with like you know we're gonna we're we're gonna have a real good time together by the velvet underground you know just like you know just total garage rock kind of like in great and uh you know super androgynous you know and uh so we knew we were on the right track and then the ramones (laughs) would play in connecticut too so we you know I missed the the Ramones played nearby at a high school, which I missed because I didn't know about it. And then they played this famous Ramones gig with Joey on drums, opening for Johnny Winter at the uh, Waterbury uh, Palace, which I always had heard about. Whoa, who like sang? One of the first gigs outside of New York. Um, I think you know the legend of that gig was like Joey played drums. I think John Johnny was trying to sing. Oh and my they, god! I think they probably played for all the twenty minutes. It's like in their gigography. Like it's like oh, one of their shit. first few gigs outside of New York. So somehow they got that 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 on that bill, and uh, which is too weird because I was really into Johnny Winter, still alive and well. I thought it was like a really just great rowdy record. Yeah. And if I was old enough, I would have been at that gig, but uh, so I didn't see that. It's funny because so I eventually saw them, like you know, in Connecticut. Because these guys would come to to Connecticut to like do gigs that weren't far from New York City. So yeah. we got to see like David Johansson and and you know, like after the Dolls broke up, um, and Talking Heads when they you know they came. And so we it was a little easier for us before we actually got into the city to see like you know Dead Boys and Suicide and all this kind of stuff. But it came qu- quickly after. Um, I was going to say Connecticut eventually gets a punk scene uh, or like a, you know, a, or like a, a, I think it's a hardcore scene, a hardcore scene. Definitely. But there, there were some yeah, yeah. first wave stuff too, right? Like there were a couple. Uh, of- I got you. I don't know what that would have been. I mean, I remember seeing some like kind of garage rock bands, like early seventies, like the boss blues who did like a seven inch. That's kind of collectible for garage rock aficionados. I was trying to think um, of I remember, I remember seeing them as a kid and thinking like they were cool. Cause they were like chewing bubble gum while they were playing and stuff. I'm trying but, uh, to think of the kill by death, uh, bloodstains across Connecticut, if there is one or anything well, like that. Well, sta- I mean, you know, I think there's some stuff that starts happening like right after I leave. I mean, I I, yeah. I moved to New York in, seven, to, in springtime, in like 76, and I would come back with my guitar on the train. It was like an hour and a half train ride. And uh, the kids I knew in high school would be hanging out by the train station near the like the friendlies there or something. Mm-hmm. And they'd see me get off this train with my guitar, and they'd just be looking at me like, what, "Like, what? The, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, what? You know, what do you think you're doing? You know." And some of them would be like, "Yeah, you know, it's like well, I was, you know, like, oh, you're not good enough to, you know, hang out with us, <laughs> friendlies." 
you got bigger plans. You got to go to New York City. Well, and also there's that famous story. I think this is in one of the Sonic Youth books. When you go to New York City, I think for the first time, and you actually see Joey Ramone walking down the street, and you ask him how to get yeah, to yeah. CBGBs, right? Yeah, yeah. We would go in to see. Um, we were into these. We were into the fast. We, the fast would play a lot, and um, then my friend Harold, who uh, who I was very close to, who actually went to the who hit me to the Patty Smith thing. We just became really connected. Mm-hmm. And then, so he was really open to like, like what I was into. And I was like, dude, you got to check this out, this out, this out. And then, so all of the glam thing, like just whatever. And then like anything that was like new in the punk thing was happening. And we would drive to this great record store in New Haven, Connecticut called Cutler's. And there was a singles department. And I remember walking in there when, when the, one of the first times because I wanted to get, you know, um, Blondie's X Offender seven inch, which I had heard about, and that was like one of the first seven inches on the New York scene. And Absolutely, asking the, asking the guy like, "Do you have a record by this group called Blondie?" And he looked at me because he kind of knew what I was talking about. He says, "Are you kidding me?" And then he's like, "Yeah, you know, like nobody would ever ask for this thing." <laughs> and uh, so there was a singles department, and that guy was getting imports, and that's where we would go and that's where I got like slaughter and the dogs, which which was like the first sort of record from, from England that I could hear. Mm-hmm. And then there was the buzzcocks spiral scratch. Well, there was new rows and, and the buzzcocks spiral scratch. So those were the first big three and then like anarchy seven inch. But so that stuff was just like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. Each time was just like, just playing that stuff over and over again. So we would go almost like, you know, twice a week to Cutler's, but then, you know, New York was a little more dangerous and a little mm-hmm. more expensive, you know. But we the first time we went, you know, we went to Max's um, just to go. We went there like at 6 p.m. And like, you know, things don't start <laughs> until like 11. And so we just like, we were like sitting there like drinking Cokes. And like, just like, wow, when's the music start, you know? And like finally are like. <laughs> around around uh, around 11 o'clock the guy behind the bar was just like what are you guys doing i was like well, we're waiting for the bands you know like he's like no it's upstairs you idiots and, you know like, oh and so we like went upstairs and and uh and we, that's where we saw the fast and uh the planets and suicide what an we're, awesome first show yeah 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 super super just just like just like we we didn't even speak to each other on the way home yeah. you know we're just like <laughs> it was one of those things we're like what just what just happened? It was like, yeah, the back of your heads were just like splattered. Uh, so and so we did, but we did know one thing that we were going to go back, and so we started. That's that was the beginning of the whole New York thing. And we, I had heard about this new place called On the Rocks, mm-hmm. and it was a very short lived thing. And it was like there was a picture in Roxine magazine of like David Johansson and, and you know, like Tommy Ramone, and like they were like they were hammering nails into this like stage, like oh, our new club On the Rocks. I was like, yeah, we got to go there. And we went there and saw Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys. And Joey was there. And uh, they had, Ramones had just come back uh, from their first foray in, in England. And uh, so I really wanted to, like, ask him about that. Yeah. And so uh, there was a couple, couple of dudes standing around Joey talking to him because, you know, he was just like, he was the guy. You know, he was like six foot seven, you know, just hunched <laughs> over. And he's like... He was just like he was like he just represented everything for me like what like what was so cool about punk rock because it was like this was not some posturing rock god kind of like money person this was like this, this guy from like suburbs who was you know probably pushed up against the locker all his life 
standing there like you know singing in like this amazing band that like people still had to get their heads around and uh yeah so i went up to him and just you know i just sort of asked him about like the sex pistols and and uh he's like yeah yeah they're okay you know (laughs) (laughs) he goes but he was like he said uh yeah, they're all right, you know. But you know, Wayne County, the Backstreet Boys, they're like nobody beats them, man. They're the best. That's awesome. <laughs> and I was like, it, it was, and, and he was kind of right because Wayne's band was like super good. Is that and, the band uh, that played on that um, Max's Kansas City single? Yeah, yeah, that single's yeah, yeah. awesome. Holy, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally awesome. And on the Max's, uh, what those tracks on the Max's album? But I, uh, so we got back in my Volkswagen, and we were we were going to sort, you know, head back to connecticut and Mm -hmm. i saw joey and his friend walking down the street and i was like man i really want to go to cbgb like i had we had been to max's we went to this place on the rocks um you know we went to the palladium and saw like you know some bigger thing and but i had yet to go to cbgb and i really wanted to go there and like i just couldn't figure out like really how like we were kids i was like how do you even get there like it's it's around here somewhere and like just seeing pictures of it like in in roxy and stuff i was like man i like that's really like you know that's the nirvana we got to go there and so i knew it was like on the bowery and bleaker and we were on bleaker and i was like if maybe we should just keep driving on bleaker we'll see it <laughs> you know like and but what we did see was we saw joey walking with some friend of his and he was kind of inebriated i could tell he was mm-hmm. like he was kind of he was kind of <laughs> swerving and i rolled down the window i said hey you know hey joey like you know but where's you know, where's CBGB? And he was like pointed straight ahead. Like, hey, it's this way, man. <laughs> and uh, I said, cool. And I said, hey, you want a ride? You want to, you know, give, give you a ride there? And he's like, yeah. And he started coming over to the car and his friend just reached over and grabbed him by the heart and said, hey, don't get in that car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's like, don't, don't, don't get in some guy's car. You know, like well, I, I could tell that was what was going on. Like, you don't, you don't just jump in somebody's car in New York City. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> especially well, in 1976. Especially in that neighborhood in 1976. Yeah, like, yeah, totally, totally. What was know, that? It was, it, was, it was like, you know, it was like the city was bankrupt and there was yeah. a lot of like, there was street crime and, you know, you just had to be careful. You know, there's a lot of, you know, there's just like, there's a lot of desperate people <laughs> yeah. bombing around the Lower East Side. And, mm-hmm. You know, but I, we, but we went there. We just parked, we parked and uh, we went inside and it was like three bucks. I don't think we had the money and like, you know, and $3 was a lot. Usually, usually it was yeah. like a dollar and a half to get in these places or two. The three was just sort of like, well, I was like, that's going to be extravagant. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I remember standing there, like, but there it was, you know, there was, you know, we were inside and that place was like on the Bowery with all these like flop houses and, you know, sirens and whatever. And, and the homeless guys just sort of like, <laughs> like, you know, lying around with their bottles and, and you know, and uh, just being in this place, I was just like, it was like going, it was like walking into like a, like a, like a witch's gingerbread house or something. It was stucco <laughs> walls and like these wooden, like, you know, window protectors and a wooden door that just completely creaked when you open it, you know? So it was like really going into like an old witch's house or something. Yeah. And uh, so walking in there, realized not having money, and there's Richard Hell standing right there. And I was just like all about Richard Hell. I had seen Richard Hell in the Voidoids at um, Max's. And I was just like, to me, Richard Hell was just like he was the the 
the guy. Yeah. Along with Joey and, you know, whatever, and Patty. But so he's standing there. He's also inebriated. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just sort of like, and in a, I asked him, I said, like, can you get us in here? He's like, oh, man, you know. And then he had a stamp on his hand, you know, that from the door. Yeah. And he started he started licking the stamp on his hand and trying to rub it rub it on my hand like one of those deals, which wasn't working at all. And uh, But we kind of like, we kind of snuck in somehow. We kind of just like went in, you know, it was kind of chaotic. And uh, and. And Blondie was on stage, and the Mumps were headlining, and uh, and that's what was going on. And I just remember walking like past the bar, and as soon as we were walking past the bar, like a beer bottle went flying by my face and like smashed in behind, <laughs> behind the bar. And I was like, "What? The, like, is this really what I'm? I'm what am I? You know, what am I getting into here? And, like, this is like really intense. Your and, life is what you know, that, that TV show Vinyl should have been, Thurston." <laughs> but you know the thing is that incident like that never happened again in my life that only yeah. happened like when i first walked in there like a fuck like a bottle flying by my face and smashing and like that kind of like so-called punk violence or whatever yeah. that never happened again at like in, in my life at, at cbgb's but that happened that first time so it was weird blondie was incredible and that and cbgb's at that point like had tables and chairs and they had a kitchen making like very suspect hamburgers and then there's dogs and cats or, you know it was like this kind of weird place but it was very homey you know what were the mumps like because i i'm a, I've, mumps were mumps were great they were like I they, love that christian band. hoffman and uh lance loud yeah you know it was like this kind of thing like these punk bands were still coming out of like this this kind of new york city kind of um post warhol kind of cabaret glammy mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. a glitter thing you know and so like the bass player would always sort of be like same with blondie like gary valentine as the bass player and and, and the mumps i forget the bass player's name but they they had this kind of thing where the hair had to be sort of like sort of <laughs> curly and like you know like um kind of a curly fro and then you were kind of like kind of dressed up you know, almost like like sylvain sylvain with like kind of the big rouge yeah. on his cheek and you're kind of like you're kind of a bit of a toy doll like baseball <laughs> like kicking your sneakers up in the air it was like this milk and cookies kind of thing you know like you know we're just kind of young and innocent but man we have lots of sex and we get high all the time <laughs> speaking of milk and cookies did you ever see milk and cookies no, I wish I did because I uh, I actually did liner notes for the for the I box know. set. What out. a great box set! Yeah, but I had the Milk and Cookies import record, which came out like two years after their demise, kind of thing. But mm. um, I was kind of fascinated by them. I knew they were sort of part of that kind of that transitional era in New York from like kind of glitter to punk. Yeah, and they were really important but i and they were just and they were just so weird you know mm-hmm. the way the, the, way the guy <laughs> sang you know like in that kind of like faux you know you know little lost boy vo- voice you know but the songs were cool and um yeah i never saw them you know you know it's funny i saw them around they were they were, you know you'd see these guys at gigs you knew who you knew who the people who were in bands and who weren't you know like at the clubs and they were kind of older i was a young guy i was like you know I was 18. Yeah. A lot of people living in New York in bands were like, you know, 21, 22. I mean, Blondie was like already in Patty. They, those, those two women were already closing in on 30. You mm-hmm. know? And so mm-hmm. there was kind of like this, this interesting sort of 
um, like age difference between like the new kids like me coming in and sort of like just observing, you know, and, yeah. and being in the audience and like, so the first teenage bands, there weren't any bands that were like 18, 19 years old until like oh. just at the end of the seventies. Just the, before the we move on from the, the stimulators sorry. were the first in a way. Oh, sorry. Just, just before we move on, to the, I definitely want to talk about all that stuff too, but I just want to talk about the mumps for one quick second. Like when you saw them, were you already familiar with the mumps or were you like, Oh my God, that's that guy from that TV show. Yeah. yeah. I, I was familiar with the mumps only because I kept uh, close tabs on Lance loud because I was a huge fan of an American family, yeah. which was like a, a PBS um like cinema verite show uh way ahead of its time as far mm -hmm. as like reality tv um where they uh, the cameras lived with this all-american family and uh it just happened to be the loud family you know that was like an upper middle class kind of west coast family and lance was the was like the was the radical uh, son he was a gay he kind of moved to new york lived in the chelsea hotel and kind of flaunced around with the world crowd and so he was like really interesting. And then in that show, American Family, he has a he has a band where he covers Kink songs and Stone songs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then knowing that he had this band, The Mumps, playing around um, the CBGB's Maxis scene, was really was very very curious to see. And they were great because I didn't really expect them to be as as good as they were. I mean, when they came out on stage, he like. He came out. He was like wild. He would he danced like um like a dervish. Like he was just like in the, well, sort of like a, a cross between a dervish and a gorilla. He was like really kind of big, and he would just like do this total monkey dance and like <laughs> you know and just like and just like whip around the stage and just like he was really like enter like you know super entertainer you know mm -hmm. and um so it was like really fun to watch that band and all the, you know the songs were really kind of like kooky and fun and like. You know, and um, so yeah, and then they they put they put out that seven inch. The seven inch, is, you know, like lots of bands, records, first records, where they just kind of catch what how great they are alive. You mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. you know, because they're like it's it's kind of com it's compressed in the studio environment. So it's just like, well, there's the song, you know, but it's just like live. It's like this explosion, you know. It's like it's just a lot, you know, it's just the way it is. There was a cool a reissue that Sympathy did, uh, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago now, 18 years ago now, that was like, that had a DVD CD-ROM type thing on a second disc that had all this great footage of them, like a live TV special even, I think, or something. Of the Mumps. Of the Mumps, yeah. It was like, of the Mumps. Yeah, it was like, or it was like definitely something shot, maybe it wasn't a live TV special, but it certainly was like a... It's shot in front of a studio backdrop type thing, and it was. Oh, I have to check that out. It was awesome. So, it, so wait, Sympathy did did like a mumps like compilation or something? Yeah, like a double CD compilation. Remember, there's one from the '80s that I think is like that's one CD, and then there was like a double CD that Sympathy right. did that was a reissue of that one, um, or like the early '90s. Uh, I guess that first CD came out. I have to check that out. I have oh, to check that out. But yeah, like I was now. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off earlier because I definitely want to talk about this. Like, were you seeing like? like Harley Flanagan and the other people from the stimulators kind of around like other younger kids that were also taking it in like yourselves. Yeah. I, well, I start, there was a coterie of like young kids who actually lived in New York mm -hmm. and they were always, they were like CBGBs every night kind of kids like sitting in the front. And, um, you know, when the dead boys came to town, you know, they became like super central to like, like what these kids wanted and it was definitely, I don't remember Harley so much, even though Harley was around a, a bit, but 
I remember seeing Harley around, especially like when the stimulators would play. I was like, well, it was, you know, it was like this two-year-old kid on drums. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you know, but I knew that he was like, he had a poetry book, you know, he wrote like as a little kid and yeah. Allen Ginsberg wrote the forward to it. And I was kind of aware of that because I was kind of aware of, of Ginsberg. Ginsberg used to hang out at CBGB's and he would like unabashedly take the stage with like Peter Orlovsky and they would like play like, you know, accordions and they would play this like chanting mantra kind of like, you know, like Buddhist kind of, and people would just sit there and go like, well, okay. You know, like what, you know, it's like, he's Ginsburg. What are you going to do? And he did and, a punk you know, record later on, right? With the, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with the, with the, the gluons. Yeah. The Denver, yeah, the gluons. Yeah. Well, that's because he was part, he, he was part of the Boulder, uh, Naropa university poetry university scene. So the Denver, okay connection makes sense definitely makes it but sense. He, but yeah ginsburg yeah i remember seeing patty there and burrows would come in and they, they would like you know clear a table for him they push like they'd push people off the out of the out of their chairs you know just get out of there you know hilly and like he, he had these these like henchmen just come in and like just push people out of their chairs and then sit burrows and his, <laughs> and his crew like right there like these untouchables the beat know, mafia and patty yeah yeah it was like all to see patty you know wow but he um so you would see like in you know you would see like these kind of beat poet era people ann waldman gregory corso like you know they would be coming in there and stuff they would that was kind of their neighborhood you know why shouldn't mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. and this and this stuff was like this stuff was where it was at you know and Patty was like sort of like the grand dom of it all, so she was super connected to that scene, and so it just made sense, you know. And Richard Richard Hell was reading at Poetry Project. Tom Verlaine was like, you know, publishing po. I mean, the, you know, there was a really definite connection to the kind of like poetry underground of like, you know, post Ginsburg Corso, and so they kind of felt like this was as much their territory as 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 a is the punks who were there, you know, and yeah. as, as far as being punks, nobody was really dressing punk like English punk or anything. It was just like, it was just kind of wild, you know, uh, it was still kind of glittery in a way, but it was definitely um, skinny ties, getting rid of the flares, cutting your hair, you well, know, wearing sneakers, you know, getting, sh- getting your clothes from like the, the 99 cent bins in front of, uh, you know, canal jeans mm-hmm. at the time when it was on Broadway. Well, like you're saying, this is the transitional period. Yeah. Um, what about the steel tips? Did you ever see the steel tips? Yeah. Steel tips were, were like one of my favorite bands. They came from New Jersey, but the steel tips were sick because like yes. they would play, they would, they actually, they actually played quite a bit and unfortunately i don't i don't you know the the fact that the steel tips weren't really sort of like you know larger in the narrative of all, of all the new york punk scene it doesn't make sense but yeah because they played a lot they only had like one they never had a record that ever showed like how 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 crazy and good they were but they would come out and the the two two lead singers one was like a huge kind of like you know um he he looked like the prototypical guy like hanging off the garbage truck you know like picking up cans and dumping them and like he he dressed that way grease like you know he had like slicked back kind of gray hair and just kind of like you know like a wife beater t-shirt kind of stained and like you know just had that look you know like like a tattoo on his like his 
his his bicep that said mom you know like he was like a biker too right like yeah kind of biker trash guy like trash man and and, uh so he would come out and next to him was like this like this young um (laughs) young girl dressed up like in a catholic school girl's (laughs) outfit it's so it's just like really inappropriate kind of like kind of connection and uh and they kind of like sang these songs together and he kind of shimmied and danced and she kind of like, she danced and it was like pretty hot. And you were just like, well, this is weird. And they had this other guy uh, who, um, I'm thinking of his name. He became a quite a famous artist. Joe Coleman. Um, Joe Coleman. And, uh, but we didn't know who Joe Coleman was yeah. then. You <laughs> yeah. know? I mean, he, he, he eventually would be, become quite known as an artist. And Joe Coleman <laughs> came out the first time I saw them, they come out and they're they're doing a song. And what really impressed me was not only just like the weirdness of of, of that performance <laughs> was was the guitar player guy who, who kind of obviously was sort of like the arranger songwriter um, of the band, and mm-hmm. he was had a really cool guitar style. And I remember even my brother, my I brought my brother with me, my older brother, and he was, who was like a real sort of like technique guitar kind of a you know appreciation guy, and he was like he always talked about that guitar player and steel tips, and um, when they came out, they're playing they're playing this song, and Joe Coleman sort of comes out, and he's wrapped up, completely wrapped up and firecrackers like strings of firecrackers just like basic you know like cheapo firecrackers but blocks of them wrapped around his body and he comes sort of waddling out on stage like wrapped up in all these fireworks and he takes out a slowly sort of takes out like a box of matches and i i hear my brother sitting next to me going like Oh no! Like no! Like he's not. <laughs> and he lights, he lights the match, and and he just like he just blows up. I mean, it's like, it's like and he goes on for, and he's like he's like like you know like just totally like you know like spazzing out like you know while while these firecrackers just just blowing up all over him. You know, it was, just, it was just insane. It was just like so good. It was you know, like, can you imagine doing that in a club now? It's like you would oh, go to jail for life. Absolutely. <laughs> there's, was, there's like one video of them playing. It's on, and once again, I think it's a Target video, but it's the footage of the Dead Boys that would eventually wind up in that New York documentary that has the Blondie Ramones and the Dead Boys yeah, footage. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on the DVD reissue of that, there's like one song by the Steel Tips playing, mm-hmm. and it's just. Yeah, like like you said, there's it's a real injustice that they're not brought yeah. up at all in the narrative of punk. Well, they never really did the the, the re- again, you know, like yeah. it, 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 you know, there's a few bands from the even from like the glitter era, like I had always heard about but never heard. There was a band called Harlots of Forty Second Street, and like you would always see their picture associated with like all the other sort of glitter bands, be it the Dolls or Kiss or, um, and I I say Kiss only because Kiss was there but they they kind of had their own world and yeah. became their own thing but um you know Wayne County Dolls and um uh who else Eric Emerson's band uh, well those, uh, but there was this one band called the Harlots of 42nd Street who were always sort of associated with that scene okay never heard anything and yeah. um you know the, the Brats you know who eventually sort of like we got some records reissues of them but um I when social when uh 
when the internet first started, there was a I I got a contact with the son of one of the harlots of Forty Second Street, and he said like, yeah, my dad has like these tapes like in the in the garage, you know, like and I was just trying like we. We have to hear. We have now. Yeah, we've got to put this stuff out. Yeah, we really want to hear the Harlots of Forty Second Street. The 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 what I had heard was like they they were not a very good band, you know. And the and, and but who uh, you know I, I you know uh, who can who can really say that? I don't. You know, I I've never heard them. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's no there's no recorded documentation of them. I think there's actually something on YouTube now where you can see some of the Harlots playing. I think there is, and it's a little hard to find because it's not under the Harlots of Forty Second Street. It's like in some other, it's in it's it's in some other weird broadcast thing um, weird. where you can see it. And like I remember, like somebody sent me a link to it, and I was like, "Oh, there they are!" You know, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, it's not exactly the the greatest thing in the world, but it's just <laughs> like, "Whoa!" You know, there they are, and uh, so so there's lots of things that never got documented that maybe it would have been interesting when you look in the history books. I mean, in steel tips, they had a seven inch and then there was a 12 inch. And I, you know, I remember thinking, I remember being kind of very excited that they had a record, but it was like, no, this is not this. This is, I want to hear, I would hear Joe Coleman blowing himself up. I want to hear those two singers like really, you know, it's a, it's, it was, it was definitely a visual uh, presentation, which was like, you know, the uh, strong case for a lot, a lot of bands were like their visual was just so, incredible that like try capturing that on record it's not the it's not always the easiest thing to do well that brings up the other band that i I had to ask you about you know with with stimulators you always see the mad and of course that band there are some great documents on record of but like yeah the stories from the live performance i never saw the mad you never got to see them yeah i never saw the mad i remember those guys being around um and but i never i never saw them you know when that's when those younger bands first started the one that i would see a lot was the blessed and it and uh with billy blessed and um uh who else was in that band uh you know what i'm talking about no bless well, walter lore uh, walter lore oh yeah oh yeah the dude the blessed well um, walter lore from the heartbreakers actually played guitar with them um for a little for a little bit which was always funny because they were so young and then walter lord just sort of looked like grandpa on stage <laughs> even though walter lord was hardly probably 32 at that yeah point. but uh and uh and then you know that happened a couple of times i remember when kraut had like steve jones playing guitar with him on stage <laughs> a couple of times. yeah this is like it was just too weird like these young guys like yeah you know and there would just be like this guy who's like you know, could barely get out of bed just getting, oh, yeah, man, I'll show you how to punk out. And it's like, well, no, it's just like weird. And, uh, <laughs> were you, yeah, in- the Blessed, you should, the Blessed were like a teenage, were the teenage punk band that sort of like were at all, you know, they, that whole front row at CBGBs of all those guys and girls yeah. or whatever. The, the bands that came, that they started, there was the student teachers and the blessed those were the two like kind of real teenage bands and there was a couple other ones there was there's was a band called spicy bits who never recorded yeah um, no i never heard of spicy bits either yeah spicy bits like the the singer spicy bits worked the door at cbgb and these were all sort of young people like younger than i was almost and mm-hmm. like you know they were starting bands and i and i would see them and i wasn't really a big fan of 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 um the blessed i thought they were a little i don't know i mean in retrospect i i kind of adore them but you know and the, and at the time the, the drum and the drummer from the student teachers just wrote a memoir oh really um, which is like a punk memoir uh 
that's called um, Girl in the Back. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which I think is a pretty good. Yeah, it's, I got to get that and, book. Uh, yeah, The Girl in the Back, A Female Drummer's Life with Bowie Blondie in the 70s rock scene. It's by, her name is Laura Davis Chanin, C-H-A-N-I-N. Oh, sounds and, awesome. Uh, I definitely got to pick yeah, that up. Yeah, it just came out. Um, Sylvain oh. Sylvain's book, There's No Bones in Ice Cream. Mm-hmm. His uh, New York Dolls book, yeah, man, that's really good. That that's also, really good. there's also the you brought him up earlier, the Gary Valentine book. I think is an interesting document. Of the like, Gary Valentine book's great. Yeah, that transitional period you're talking about too. Yeah, yeah. the Gary Valentine book is really worth reading is for that whole scene. And and as is Philip Marcade's book, the guy who's in the Senders. Oh, um, I gotta who, get that. That's really good to read. Duncan Hanna's book. Um, called 20th century boy uh he was he was like the guy who ran the television fan club in like 76 until verlaine told him to take a hike and he was like kind of he was part of that scene he 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 was a young art student guy who came into new york really early on and he designed like the cover of the first marbles seven inch oh know, like, that's awesome stuff like that on the work yeah he was part of the orc scene so his his um his book is great because it's it's all his diaries of the time that he kept. So it's not retro. It's not like a memoir. It's yeah. actually sort of his diaries of the time. So it's just like, you know, there's all this stuff's happening in his diaries where he's hanging out with like television and Patty Smith and stuff that it's really good. There's stuff in there that really um, kind of, kind of elucidates a lot of uh, the scene that you probably wouldn't get from just people trying to remember things <laughs> were, were you in new york when sid vicious showed up oh yeah totally i um i would like when the pistols didn't play new york yeah it was just like so frustrating <laughs> and you knew they were like i was just like man do i drive to atlanta you know my good friend don fleming it was in velvet monkeys and, mm-hmm. and you know he saw them in in, in atlanta he said it was great Oh, that's awesome. I had no idea you, you know, saw him there. Yeah, yeah. He said that was like really good. And, you know, so we were keeping tabs on it. It's like, oh, they're in Texas or in Tulsa, you know, and then they do that, they they do that kind of shit show in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then it's over. And and then they kind of they come to New York after that. And so the thing is, right at the end of their that tour, there's an ad in in the Village Voice for like Sid Vicious and his crew at Max's Kansas City. And it's right afterwards. And um, so, yeah, we went to that. You know, me and Harold went to that. And we, when we were, like, kind of, like, smart enough to, like, go early. Like, we were like, we got to go and get in, in line. Yeah. And uh, we did. We got there, like, like, you know, late afternoon. And there was already a few people, like, lined up. And we got in line. And we were, like, and we just waited, like, you know, multiple hours. And then, like you know, clambered upstairs, sat really close and then sat waiting for like another like thousand hours because they didn't really, <laughs> they didn't, they, and there was like this really hellish band that opened up, you know, that was just kind of wrong. And then, uh, and, and then they, another like few hours. And then finally, like, um, people were just getting super restless and drunk. And it was, and weirdly enough, it wasn't like the typical Max's audience that, I would see like New Yorkers. It was like a lot of French people and like, <laughs> like, like leather, like leather pants wearing kind of European. Like I was like, what? this is strange. And uh, finally they kind of, and the only way to get to the stage 
is through the audience at Max's. You'd come down like from the dressing room, and then you would walk through the audience, and then, you know, it was a small room. Okay, and uh, and it was tables. You know, it was mm-hmm. kind of like you know a little bit of a cabaret vibe. So they kind of finally like you know they come on stage, and you're looking at it, it's just like. You know, it's Killer Kane on bass. It's Sid. Nancy's with him, holding his hand. Uh, and and uh, Ty Sticks, I think, is on drums, who was like a Heartbreakers drummer guy. And um, I don't think it was Nolan. It might have been Nolan and uh, Jerry Nolan on drums. I forget who the drummer was. It's on the record, the yeah. Sid Sings record. Uh, and Mick Jones of The Clash. And The Clash have yet to play New York. They're supposed to play... They're going to play the Palladium, which we have tickets for. We're going to see the Clash, but they have yet to really play. And so there's Mick Jones, and it's like, why is Mick like <laughs> this dude from the Clash, you know, like playing playing guitar? And uh, and so they come out, and there's a curtain on stage. So they come, on, people are just like ready to lose it. And Sid sort of opens a curtain, just sticks his head out, and does his famous like Sid wink. You know, yeah, like he's totally playing Sid. He's yeah. like, I'm Sid. This is what you want. Yeah, I'm giving it to you. And he does, and then the curtain opens up, and they go right into like, you know, come on, everybody, or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> like cover songs. You know, like, and he's just like, he's totally like the you know the chain bell, the chain you know around his neck, you know, the whole thing. And Nancy's like playing a tambourine barely, you know, <laughs> against her like leg, and like, and uh. And the whole place erupts. I mean, it's like every table, every chair is just like upended. You know, it's like, ah, ah, you know, like punk nuts, like nutso. And me and my friend are just like looking at her laughing, like, what the, like, what a, like, you know, we're getting killed. And uh, so the gig is just great. And, you know, (laughs) after the first song, like some girl yells like, like, you know, I love you, Sid. And he's just like, shut your fucking mouth, you stupid fucking. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then somebody like spits, and then he just like super gobs back, like right in like the face of the person. Like Bleh. he was, he was not, he was just totally on it. Like you know, I am like this is. <laughs> yeah. They played for thirty minutes, <laughs> and it was just like it was just destruction. It was great, and. uh and then I would see, you know, and that was, that was, um, I, I think I moved to New York right then. And so I, that, I think that's how it was, it was happening. My, my friend who would see these gigs with me, Harold never moved. He stayed in Connecticut. So he would meet me and then we would do these things. And so, yeah, I was living in this tiny little, like super tiny apartment on 13th between A and B right across the street from like where Lydia lunch lived. And, and, you know, it's, you know, these, this kind of no wave people were living around where I was living. Well, that was the other thing I was going to ask you about. Like, when did you, you – so you, you you had done The Coachman when you were younger, right? Yeah, I'm doing that. Like, that's the that's what gets me to move to New York because I got to be in the band. Okay. So, yeah. Um, And so were you already hip to, like, the, the No Wave stuff that was happening at that time? Or, like, how did you become uh, yeah. aware of that? Oh, I, I was hip to it in the sense that I knew that it was happening and I would – and I you know, and I would see these bands and they were just kind of like they, – they were really curious to me. I didn't really, like – evaluate them necessarily i was just sort of like well these are just like local bands that are just playing like like really (laughs) insanely you know (laughs) like it's like you know um but i was kind of super i got super more into it but at at you know in 76 77 like when lydia's doing teenage jesus and the contortions are happening 
I never saw Teenage Jesus at the time because I was just kind of wary of it. And she was really like saying stuff in the Soho Weekly News about like hating everything, like, you know, calling Patty Smith a barefoot hippie, you know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it's like, we're not even like, we're not even past 77 yet where we're kind of disparaging Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. You're already disparaging like the person who's disparaging the, you know, it's, it's like, well, it's too soon. You know, like at least let her do Easter before you start doing it. But so Lydia was just like hardcore from the very beginning. She yeah. was, you know, Lydia moved to New York when she, in 74 she saw like you know she saw everything she was a kiss groupie and she was like she kind of um was a runaway who befriended wayne county you know like in 74 and like she was just like on the street like she she is the one eyewitness of all eyewitnesses to everything you know oh yeah um, she's completely quote unquote intimate with the scene let me put it that way <laughs> and uh so <laughs> she's her story is like man if you can get that story I want to call her oh and get a gosh. punk story she'll give you a punk she'll give you a punk history lesson that is insane cuz she tells me things once in a while that like that she had that about everybody about be it like Willie DeVille anybody I mentioned if I mentioned Dr. Feelgood she goes like oh yeah that guy and she still tell me <laughs> she's this got a story, story. About, like yeah like this crazy like you know she's just like on it you know she takes teenage jesus to like london in like 77 you know with like no announcement they just go over there on like you know scam gigs and stuff so no she's she's hardcore oh yeah but, and still uh, and still doing yeah. amazing records like that's someone who yeah, also yeah, 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 still yeah, pushes the envelope yeah she's still the real deal man <laughs> yeah. but uh yeah so um what what uh, what did you ask me? Well, no. So you moved to New York with the Coachman. So what, where did oh, yeah. you where did you guys kind of fit in scene wise? Like where did you find yourselves playing, or where were you? Kind art of- rock band. I mean, they were they they those guys came out of uh, Rhode Island School of Design. They were like the next graduating class after um, David Byrne and, and Tina Weymouth and all that uh, Talking Heads. They because and so that was part of their scene there. Yeah, okay, and they were when the. Talking Heads were first called the Artistics um, and sometimes the Autistics, and they played on campus and they moved to New York and called themselves Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. And these guys came later, and they were, you know, they were the same deal. They were like graphic artists or whatever, um, and wanting to sort of like pick up guitars. I just met um, JD King, the one of the guys, just by chance at Cutler's Record Store, like at the Velvet Underground bin, you know, and, and just we started talking about stuff, and he was asking me about like uh, Punk Magazine and all this kind of stuff. I was like, yeah, yeah, I knew everything, and so he was yeah. just like, Jesus, and so he took my number, and then he, and uh, we started writing to each other, and then he said, yeah, we're we're moving to New York, we're gonna start bands, blah, blah, blah. and if you want to like come and maybe play bass or something, I was like, yeah, whatever, and so I just started driving in and like uh with with the cheap guitar i had and just like kind of met these guys and started playing and we and uh they decided to call the band the coachman as a kind of a kind of a joke name you know thinking that it was like sort of the, the prototypical kind of lounge rock name of like you know is this a kind of a, a an off name um anyway we, so yeah so those guys we're kind of really tied into the whole sort of talking heads, David Byrne art rock world um, around Soho playing in, you know, lost spaces and galleries. And that's kind of how I saw like the static and theoretical girls and, okay. and in these bands, because they were kind of part of that more Soho art rock scene. 
So is that sort of knowing, you know, just knowing that these, you know, there was like this kind of a bit of a division between those bands and sort of the East Village bands around Contortions and Mars and DNA. And I would see, I saw DNA in, uh, with when Robin Crutchfield was in it and Mars, I would see Mars started out as China. I never, and I remember China playing at CBGB's, but I never saw them. I wish I did. I wish I saw, I wish I, I kind of wish I was hanging out with all these people because they were kind of very in, they were all in the same places, you know, mm-hmm. I would see them, but they kind of were, they kind of were crazy. Everybody was like, you know, living on each other's floors and like, no money and kind of doing drugs and kind of like doing weird things for money and like whatever. I was kind of like a conservative Catholic Connecticut kid, kind of like, you know, I was kind of watching out for myself a bit. You know, I think if I had gotten a little closer to that crew of like James Chance and Lydia and stuff, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. (laughs) (laughs) It was a hard living scene. (laughs) Yeah. It was just kind of like, yeah, their bodies kind of fell. Yeah. And so I, um, but I and I was a little, I was a little sort of um, put off by some of their kind of, um, you know, they were very sort of like, yeah, they were just so super negative and weird and like, and I kind of liked it, but I didn't really, I didn't really care. I was just sort of like, you know, we're doing our thing, and you know, it sort of was interconnected, and um, so, but. We were all at the same gigs. There's a famous photo, like that No Wave photo of everybody sitting on the top of the car outside of CBGB's, like the No Wave like lineup. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's my friend Harold, who I go to all the gigs with, sitting at the very far end, just sort of looking kind of bummed out, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> that's him. That's the guy. And behind him, you see a, a white Volkswagen parked on Bleecker Street facing the photograph. Mm-hmm. That's my Volkswagen. <laughs> so I and I'm I'm just off to the side, like also just smoking a cigarette, but I'm not in that photo. And I talked to Godless about it. You know, I said, you know, you just missed me in that photo. And I'm so pissed off that I'm not in that photo. <laughs> pull out but, further. Why did you pull yeah, out a yeah. little further? It's like young Scluvunos and like everybody's in that car, you know, yeah. Bradley Field and all this stuff. So the, it, we were all in the same places, but I was kind of like, you know your bands are kind of whatever. I mean, they're just kind of, <laughs> they sound crazy, whatever. I never really thought it wasn't until no New York came out and I was like, Hey, this is kind of cool. And then like, and then seeing Glenn play like with the theoretical girls and the static, I really liked what was going on with like this guitar noise and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I did dig it. I really, I did like it, but I never really thought of it as like, this is like, you know, this is really making me want to, um, you know, really invest in being a musician or something. Not, not in the sense that like watching like Tom Verlaine or, or, or something like that. Um, which I was just really like, you know, that, that would really sort of take me, take me there. But, you know, in retrospect, it, it does, you know, and I, mm-hmm. and I think about like seeing like the static or seeing Glenn's first six guitar thing or whatever, and, like how important that was really to like what I, I began doing, you know, more outside, beyond the coachman and the sonic youth and stuff like that absolutely i was gonna say like so you 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 play with the static is that when you meet glenn for the first time i guess well i don't play with the static i see that i i the coachman play on a gig with the static it's the first time i see them yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah we we play it at a some kind of loft party at jenny holzer's uh, loft on broadway and uh, I didn't – with the static were, were terrible. I mean, I remember they were like – it was Barbara S. and Glenn and um, they were – and uh, 
they were doing these really kind of long extrapolated kind of songs that were sort of designed to annoy in a way. <laughs> but in uh you can hear them like on the cassette tape that came out uh, of the static, like the static Dan Graham cassette that came out of England when they did it at, uh, uh, you know, they, they did it here at, at, at the South bank center or something. It was like some of the art scene, but uh, the static seven inch is great. And the theoretical yeah. seven, it, the theoretical girls seven inches is, is, is pretty killer too. So, I mean, you know, the, hearing those records, that's sort of where I connect with Lee, you know, because Lee was really sort of into that scene, and um, and and Kim was into that scene as well. But she was kind of coming in it from art world, moving to New York with Mike Kelly, and just kind of like you know, look, it's more. It was definitely art world where I was like kind of more like music kind of street thing, and Lee was coming out of college, and so he was like he was in New York to like do art and music and stuff. I wasn't in New York to do art and music. I was in New York to be in a rock band. I was yeah. in New York to be a band. That was primary, my primary thing. The idea of art school, I knew that that existed and that was sort of a defining kind of um, motivation for a lot of people. But I didn't, I didn't, even, I wouldn't even know how I had no, nobody told me about art school. Like you could actually go to art school and like, you know, <laughs> do really cool stuff in art school. You know, my father was like an art appreciation professor, you know, but he, you know, he passed away in 76. So, mm -hmm. I, and it was just this thing like, you know, you can actually go to art school and like, you know, be, be around a bunch of people that, you know, you might sort of, you know, enjoy being around. This never, that never was, uh, that was never an alternative for me. So I just like, I just jumped in New York and like hung out with all these art school people. Yeah. Everybody, you know, so New York was like, there's very few indigenous people in New York playing New York music, you know, and uh, except for like the Harley Flanagan's of the city, you know, these, uh, these kind of street rats, but most people were coming out of like art schools, all the no way people were coming out of Cleveland or Florida, you know, Lydia came from Rochester, New York. And even the dead boys, you know, even the dead boys came from Cleveland yeah. talking heads came from college and, yeah. and uh, you know, Patty Smith came from New Jersey, you know, like in the sixties. And so it's like, nobody really would rough in the streets of New York. That would, that was something that was more part of like the Latino music scene, you know, salsa scene and the hip hop scene was, that was, that was starting to happening. You know, it was like, these were people who were making music that was brought up from their experience of growing up in these, in this, in this environment. Mm -hmm. So it was, that was kind of, that was kind of curious. The hardcore scene was more in a way of like kids who had grown up in the city. So that was kind of, that was kind of interesting. You know, they're at least close to the city, like heart attack or whatever. came from Long Island, you know? Um, so they, these guys were, had a bit more of a affinity to like growing up in the city than, than most of us from the seventies, you know? Did you see any of that stuff when that stuff? Well, obviously you saw that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like, what was what was that like when that started coming? I saw out? the simulators at, at Tier Three. Tier Three was like a six month long club, on, and, and that was really great. And that's where a lot of that's where I saw more of the kind of just post no wave bands. Like the as soon as they started playing stuff that was less kind of just like um, scrunked out stuff. So like contortion sort of broke off into like the bush tetras mm -hmm. the bush tetras were great when they first started like and and then lydia started doing this thing called eight-eyed spy you know with different people from different these bands were all sort of in, in, incestuous and that was eight-eyed spy were great and that's where i started seeing those bands and those bands kind of brought me back to their kind of like 
you know, their first bands like Teenage Jesus and stuff like that. But this is all this is all happening like within a year and a half. I know, it's crazy <laughs> to think about how <laughs> yeah, it's compressed it's not this like, time period. Yeah, things are just like flashing, and then like all this stuff from England is like you know, like you know, you know, the rank tier three and madness plays at tier three and certain ratio plays at tier three and like these things come over and they just play and they go back to london um but yeah i saw the stimulators at tier three and they they were playing like straight up kind of punk rock yeah at that point like it was like well nobody's really playing straight up punk rock anymore i mean people are playing more weirdo rock and just like just other things going on here but to play like really straight up kind of like ramones dead boys kind of like buzzcocks you know core stuff it's like in a way that was not that wasn't really happening anymore. So it was a little sort of like that's funny that they're actually like that's really what they want to do. So it's a little it's a little quaint, <laughs> you know, even at that time. And so I didn't really think much of it. And, you know, of course, like Harley being this like really young drummer was kind of funny. But but there, you know, it was definitely this energy thing. And then I started seeing a lot of flyers for like um, bands like like uh, even worse in. Uh, and heart attack and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I got kind of um, interested in, I don't know how I got interested in it. You know, the rat cage opened up and it was a record store. So I would go there cause it was a record store and the rat cage sort of had these first seven inches coming out of DC, like the first like discord seven, seven inches youth brigade and SOA and minor threat. And, um, and you, were idols. To, and you were probably like, were you already aware, obviously, of like the, the, the stuff that was happening in California at the same time? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe that's, it, it, it may be sort of connected to that because, you know, when I, I meet Kim in around, I meet Kim in 80s, late 79 to 80, and she's California, she's Los Angeles. So I go to LA with her, but that's like around, I guess that's an 80, and I go to LA to see her family and stuff. And I really want to go to the whiskey. And I think I think it's around this time that I'm really sort of curious about the germs. I think when Darby yeah. dies, um, Darby dies the same weekend as John Lennon. <laughs> and I remember, you know, um, I remember the, the Lennon murder happening and rehearsing with, like, Kim and Anda Marinus and, and Dave Key, who was like drumming with the coachman at the time. And we were just sort of getting things beginning. I don't think we were even calling ourselves anything yet. And that happens. And then I remember going to this one store that sold like music magazines and stuff called, uh, it was called Same as Dat in Soho. And they would have Flipside and Slash. And I would look at that going like, oh, this is this whole LA thing. And mm-hmm. search and destroy. Like and uh and then the English papers and stuff. And so I would get these things. And so I became very curious about the germs just because of the fact that this guy died. <laughs> you know, and then yeah. I, so I uh and then going to LA and like getting these records and the germs record the first germs record I got was the one that was caught in my eye. Uh, 12 inch that came after the GI record. And that's when I yeah. met Michael and I met Michael Girard and he had just moved to New York and he was playing in the B people strict dids. And he was friends with Kim from, from, from university, uh, Otis art Institute. So she, um, 
introduced me to this guy that she went to school with and it was Michael Gerard. And then I had just come back from LA and I said like, Oh, I got these records in a, I think I, I think I'm about to get, I think group sex was out. Um, jealous again. I had these first LA records, but I was really kind of interested in it. And, um, I remember hearing Jealous again, 12 inch, and just thinking it just sounded like, it just sounded brutal. Yeah. I mean, it just sounded like, yeah. I mean, it sounded like, I couldn't believe that guitar sound. And it was just something, you know, I remember like the people we were staying with or whatever just looking at me going, like, this sounds horrible. Like, you know, so, like I was like, yeah, it sounds, f-. I mean, to me, I was just like, what is this? This is like, totally damn it. Like, like, and uh, so I, I remember like playing, meeting my, Michael Duran. He was just like, "Oh, I was totally part of that scene around the mask and all this kind of stuff like that." And like he's like, "How just how just great it was!" Like you know, he was like, you know, place. It was just like total total insanity, like at the mask. And then playing, and I said, "Well, I got this record caught in my eye, but but the germs, you know, Darby died, and I was gonna." And remember putting that record on, and just like, like. Michael Gerard's face going like this is really what that's the sound that was like happening in LA like that's the sound of that record caught my that song caught my eye by the germs on that 12 inch is like to me is this like number one perfect I mean, like, yeah. you know it's like Jesus Christ and so that I think that's what really led me into uh super getting into like West Coast punk hold on a second hello I think my favorite yeah. Jonah story is like that time we were playing in South by Southwest and, and you were doing that show and Andrew WK yeah. no showed and Jay hit me up. He's like, who do you know that can play all these songs? And I'm right. like, Jonah, a hundred percent Jonah. Yeah. It was like 30 hard, hardcore songs. And he just was like, it's this one, it's this one, it's this one. He's like, oh yeah, yeah. He's like, he nailed the whole thing. He nailed the whole thing. It's, it's he nailed the whole thing. And he was just like killing it. And I was just like, I'm like reading off lyric sheets. You know? I was I like, damn. Oh, I would be too. I would be too. I would be reading off the lyric sheets. Jonah could have, that's the thing is Jonah could have filled in for anyone that night and nailed all those songs. Yeah. Like, He's just got that kind of like, especially when it comes to punk and hardcore, like a yeah. a photographic memory. And I really think that, you know, we are we are uh, in your in your image, you know, as far <laughs> as punk music consumers and punk music fans. Like, Mascus has the Mascus has the same thing where he can like just like because like when I brought on all the songs, he just like he he completely nailed each one. He goes, like, yeah, oh, you know. I had all those records. I was like, I had all those records too. I can't like just pick up a guitar and play them. But <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 it Mascus though, you know, he, he, he spares all the social graces in order to retain all the riffs. Whereas yeah. with Jonah, I don't know how he does it because he's still like the most personable human being I know. Right. And, and yet retains all the riffs somehow. It's, yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, um, back to what we were talking about earlier when we were talking, um, you know, about you kind of like finding this, finding this like scene, going to see these bands and, and the sort of this, this new scene that's happening. It's almost like you're like one of the few people like, you know, cause you have that zine that came out. That's like a hardcore fanzine, but also talking about, you know, the, the art, seeing that you're also got one foot in at the same time. You're one of the few people it yeah. looks like that was straddling those re- lines. I, the thing is I got really into hardcore. I thought it was great. Yeah. And it's just like, as soon as I saw the bands, like, um, I, you know, I, I really like, I, 
the thing is, like, the Misfits were sort of like this kind of core band from that scene, and the Misfits were around pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And the Misfits were kind of this band doing like a horror shtick. They would play at Max's a lot, and like, I just like, I, I wasn't interested. And then I would hear like, <laughs> and then when, and then, and, and uh, when the Rat Cage first opened, and there was like younger hardcore kids hanging out, um, I remember like hearing a couple people talking about, oh, the Misfits are playing at Irving Plaza, and. Uh, and there was this famous gig with the Misfits with like a uh, minor threat and negative approach and Necros, I think. And like, it was like this kind of crazy gig. And I was like, I couldn't yeah. go. I, I think, I think our, like we were going away, like we were going to do touring or something. And I was like, I, damn, I really, that's one gig I really like to see. Like with all these bands <laughs> I've been hearing about. And, uh, but I remember these, these hardcore kids at, Rat Cage going like, yeah, you know, we're gonna leave before the Misfits come on. I don't want to see the stupid Misfits. They're either corny, like, you know. And I was like, so I just sort of thought that was the case, but this certainly wasn't the case for like, you know, like the bands really outside of New York. They were just like the Misfits were really were were super critical. Yeah. And I think as soon as I heard um, the the Jackie O single, I was just like, this is great. You know, attitude. Come on, that's like you know that was so good. I was like, I realized like the Misfits are great. Like these records are great. They must be great live. Never got to see them. I never went to see them. And they kind of sort of stopped. I, I saw Sam Hain as soon as they started, but I didn't see it. <laughs> but I started going to see. I I started going to A Seven and and seeing you know hard bands and so in the New York ones like Heart Attack, like the Heart Attack Seven Inch. I remember Glenn Bronca coming from 99 records where he was going to do his first record with. Mm-hmm. And we used to hang out there and he was walking down the street. It's like, Oh, here's one of those hardcore records that, you know, that you like. And I was like, what? He thought it was weird that I liked, you know, like, like this music. Yeah. And, uh, and he says like, yeah, these heart attack. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I heard about these guys and that record was dead. Um, shotgun, uh, amazing, amazing, amazing. It's like I played that oh, record yeah. over. I was just like, "This is this is it. This is like boom, like we're in." And so I went to see Heart Attack, and they were great. And a lot of New York bands were not like Buzzkill, like Buzz Buzzsaw is that you know, like Kraut was like kind of a little more rock, and the Undead and all these. They were you know they sort of had this kind of kind of New York thing that was in transition whereas like the DC bands were like starting like day one like you know like you know and they were coming up and just like killing it and CBGB started having hardcore matinees and those were just super amazing and that's everybody from all the different like Connecticut Vermont everybody's coming into to New York just to go to the matinees and that's where you started getting like these sick sick pits you know with like all these bands and I saw all I, I went there every hardcore show I was at, you know, and I was, and I was kind of like the older guy standing against the wall, you know, I, yeah, wasn't, yeah. I wasn't like, you know, I didn't shave my head. I didn't start like, you know, circle dancing with everybody. <laughs> I was just like, you know, I would just observe. I knew that I was kind of older and like, and I was like, man, I wish I was like four or five years younger. I would be so part of that right yeah. now. But I was, I wasn't like in this band that as we were walking into the primitive club, like the hardcore kids would go, Archie bands rule, you know, like this kind of thing. I, I was like, oh man, <laughs> I felt like a little at odds. So I started infusing more um, of of that in, into Sonic Youth. So even on like the sec- second record, Fusion of Sex, there's you know, there's like there's things on there that for me were like kind of a 
sort of kind of hardcore reference, you know, musically, even though our guitars were tuned completely wrong. <laughs> no, absolutely. 100% though. Like I, you, you hear that on that record. Like I remember being, you know, I remember buying that record, you know, after being in a Sonic Youth, of course, and being like, oh man, this is way too harsh. And then going back to it once I kind of yeah. was more into hardcore and being like, oh shit, I understand this way more now. Yeah. A lot of it had to do with, with, with my love for hardcore at the time, like, in, like day one. And it was just like, you know, it was put up with by the rest of the band members more than anything. I took Lee to see a few gigs. Um, you know, Kim was okay with it. It, it, but you know, I was just sort of like making hardcore mixtapes. I was getting all the seven inches, I was just making like cassette mixtapes of like, you know, I still have my original uh, cassette tape uh, hardcore mix. On one side of the label says H, on the other side of the label says C. <laughs> I think is that in that mixtape book that came out years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's it. I I have definitely studied that tape. My also. that was my kind of like gift tape that I would like dupe for people like and. uh so yeah, I mean that was just like I was just way into it, and oh, uh, yeah. you, know, so I, you know, at some point I became friends with Lyle Heisen. I remember like playing a gig at Folk City, just like noisy Sonic Youth drumsticks, screwdrivers, all this kind of stuff. And I remember like um, Lyle Heisen from the Misguided uh, brought um, brought the members of Heart. He brought Jesse Mallon from Heart Attack. A couple other people came to see our gig. Mm-hmm. And we were playing, and I think it had a lot to do with us playing with the Meat Puppets because they had just come to New York for the first time. So it was like Sonic Youth Meat Puppets and Hose, which is Rick Rubin's. Oh, Rick Rubin's band, <laughs> Def Jam 001 and 002. <laughs> yes. And so we did this gig, and those guys came. And um, and I remember, always remember, like, Jesse Mallon was like, you know, he was like, he must have been like four years old. And he was just going like, oh, man, uh, I, heard th- uh, I heard that you saw the Dead Boys. I was like, yeah, man, I saw the like five hundred times. I saw every Dead Boys gig there, but it was just sort of like uh, it, it really made me feel old. All of a sudden, I was like, just like I was still in my twenties. I was all of a sudden there was like this new generation that wasn't old enough to have seen the Dead Boys. Yes. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa! Things are changing, you know. And then we did our gig, and I remember them outside going like, hey, "You guys got a lot of energy." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that's that's the that's, worst thing you can say." <laughs> yeah but i think that was their way i mean was, that was like you know the idea of having a lot of energy was just like yes yeah, that's a that was a good thing <laughs> yeah it's like oh the crowd seemed to love it tonight <laughs> that's the... yeah the crowd liked it the crowd really <laughs> yeah, liked it but uh <laughs> and then we did a gig with heart attack in uh cbgb's it was like heart attack swans and sonic youth at cbgb oh what a show and uh and then we did <laughs> And then we uh, did a gig with Necros at CBGB's. Um, I became friends with Barry and those guys. I became, I started, being, you know, I did an interview with like, I, then I was playing with Even Worse, you know, for a little bit. Yeah, and of we course. Were on, we were on like a hardcore bill at like Great Gildersleeves that was next door to CBGB's club. And it was like Even Worse, Minor Threat, and um, a, a Cause for Alarm. And, <laughs> and uh, maybe, maybe the, um, what were they called? The, the, uh, the abuse. Whoa. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. so, sick. so like all the, all the bald head, like New York bands. <laughs> yeah. and, us. and then like, and I interviewed Ian and, um, on cassette and I, I put some of it in killer, my fans in killer, this interview with uh, Ian in there. And that's how I kind of met like Jimmy Johnson at Porsche exposure. Like I traded zines with him. And he's like, I like your interview with Ian. And it kind of like 
sort of similar to the interview I did with Ian and, and Effie. And so I started meeting a lot of these guys. I became kind of a, the interview I did with Ian was on the phone, actually. I just sort of, he just gave me his phone number at, at the gig. And he said, yeah, call me, you know. You know and, uh, so I called him and he, he gave me like a, you know, five-hour interview. And uh, so I just started, you know, really, I started getting into all like the whole sort of like scene across America, like the whole Madison scene, you know, like the whole Cleveland the scene, the whole Ohio funny punk scene, yeah. you know, like the beat offs and the off beats and like <laughs> yeah. Starvation Army, Starvation Army, I thought were great. You A know? great band. Yeah. 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 And I saw them, they came to New York and I was just like, yeah, Starvation Army. And, uh, and they, the Starvation Army did a cover of that song from Chips, you know, and, oh, uh, the, what's the punk band in that movie, in that episode called? Fuck, yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, they they do a cover of that song, but at this, but Harley's band also did a cover of that song, and I remember like Starvation Army doing a cover of that song really well. Yeah, and like, yeah. and I remember these hardcore kids turning around and looking at Harley like, "Whoa, dude, you don't own that anymore." <laughs> and like, <laughs> and Harley had this look of on his face like, "Oh shit," you know, just. I, 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 uh, you know. <laughs> that's awesome well speaking of covers i had to bring up the fact that like yeah like you, you know you brought up that mistake that's on uh louis louis way back when when we yeah. first started talking and then when you guys did that cover of crime yeah, on yeah. sister and you included the mistake on it yeah yeah, uh, yeah that to me is like that that song is uncoverable because you guys did the perfect cover version <laughs> that's, that's nice of you to say that you know like you guys kind of own that song but um it's it's also like you know it's also funny that like you know you brought up Barry Hensler you brought up all these people like they would eventually do bands that kind of like went artier it's like everyone eventually catches up to you well I don't know or you I guys mean, I, your band I think you know it's sort of like in the no wave thing it's like bands just like they they kind of you you can't help but sort of like kind of like find your way around the keyboard in a way you know yeah. it's like yeah. it's like I certainly did that it was like even when Sonic Youth did Daydream Nation again like in the early two thousands as like a bit of a retro thing I was really up against it because I didn't want to return to anything and but it was just like listening to the master tapes of Daydream Nation and hearing my uh, my guitar channel sort of um, you know just by itself i was like god i played so differently so simply like you know it was like i you know, i throughout the 90s i just sort of became a different guitar player because i just you play so much and you just start becoming more you know you just become more adept and so i think that's sort of what happened with our hardcore bands they, they started becoming bands that had a more musicality to them for better or worse mm -hmm. i think it had a lot of the hardcore kids too i mean certainly with with minor threats sort of like hitting a wall and then Ian going into doing Fugazi and stuff like that, you know, or even like Rollins leaving black flag and doing Rollins band where it became more f kind of different fusiony ideas and stuff. Anybody, I mean, anybody even black out flag wanting... by that point, right? Like even black flag had changed so much by that point. Yeah. Yeah. And flag was always like, all, flag was all about change. Yeah. You know, like, uh, it, you know, in the face of just expectations of just like, you know, um, that band was super interesting in that respect. Again, mm. for better or worse. You know? Yeah, for, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think like, you know, you bring up Daydream Nation, but to me, Sister, that's the record that I think is like the perfect bridge between kind of like what would become and, you know, sonically like al mm -hmm. alternative music and then what was yeah, makes before. Yeah. Like, you know, like I think that record to me is like, you know, right down to the crime cover being on there. That's right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, you know, I don't even know what, what year is that. That's like eighty six, eighty seven. 
Yeah. You know, then covering a crime thing is just sort of like, I mean, you know, that crime seven inches from when? Like seven, 78, 79 yeah, or something? 78, so it's already, I think that one. It's already, uh, you know, it's, it's a good decade. You know, so it's becoming this kind of like, you know. And it's, but the thing with that is like trying to find, even trying to find that crime scene. Oh, yeah. That's you know, was impossible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, finding, finding, you know, those original documents from like California, like, you know, like ah, I found the first alley cat seven inch. I mean, it was like, those, those were, that was big yeah. you know, to find these records, you know, like, like hiding somewhere in a record store. You know, if you found the Eddie and the subtitle seven inch, you were just like, Whoa. Or like somebody had like the, the gold vinyl adolescence seven inch. It was just like finding like, you know, Medusa's tooth. Or <laughs> when did you start buying records from like cause I remember reading I think it was in Magnet you had a column or I can't remember which magazine but you did an article about Finnish hardcore one time oh and wow it, yeah that might have been in, in there was a magazine called Mean uh, that, that that the writer Dave Eggers kind of like edited I, I was kind of in there for a second like I had some column called um, The Living Underground um, I, I'm trying to remember I think it was like more of like a just sort of like it might not have been magnet, not mix mag. It was some. It was like a, like a kind of like a, a you know, like a fairly available magazine. And I remember yeah. like distinctly, you had like, and it might not have been. I'm wow, sure I don't even remember that. I mean, I would, I, 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 you know, I totally would have, and I probably did, uh, you know, according to you. No, <laughs> I, and I, I, I well, it, it had a, it had an impact on me seeing you write this, in, especially like, you know, once again, like, you know, I was by this point, like. You know, these were the bands I was obsessed with, and here once again, you were writing about these bands <laughs> in a mainstream. Those Finnish hardcore seven, those those first Finnish hardcore seven inches were just crazy. how, yeah. how great they were. Yeah, you know, bastard. I mean, Tervi Cadet, first Tervi Cadet, Chaos. I I met the singer from Chaos like years later. The guy was like in and out of prison a few times. You know, he was just like whatever, like in Finland, and then he came to like some sound check or something. I had, him, I think I had him sign like <laughs> he. I mean, like the sing, what's his name, Jackie or something, yeah. the singer of Chaos. And <laughs> yeah. I was just like, dude, you are like, you know, so important. Like to me, he was just like, you know, he was in tears, and I was just like, seriously, man, Chaos, those first seven inches, and the fact that those seven inches came in like these kind of sleeves that were kind of somewhat opaque in yeah. a way, you know, yeah. like, I was like, what is this? Like, it was so mysterious and strange. And well, each one just like, you know, seven, eight, nine second songs that were just like fantastic. You know, like, it, like super hardcore, just like really thin buzzing, like, man, so well, good. And you did that like in Toronto too. I remember, uh, you know, I wasn't at the gig, but when you guys played the Great Hall, you, you shouted out like wanting to meet Steve Leckie. Like, it seems like you were the guy <laughs> that kind of championed a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, especially given the platform you had when no one was championing it and like, you know, and turning these people that at the time were kind of forgotten into icons. I was just, I was just, you know, I was, you know, I was always like into, and, and it wasn't just like record collecting. I was just like really in, in, into the music. And it's like, I have yet to see like a documentary about hardcore and there has been a couple, mm -hmm. you know, and there's been a few where it actually talks about like how good the songs are. Yeah. So it's always like, <laughs> even like that one, like hardcore, you know, we were like, we just wanted to go out and like, like, you know, mess things up, man. Like we were just like, whatever. It's just like, there's all this kind of bully boy kind of like, kind of dot, like, you know, stuff. And I was like, actually, you know, it's like hardcore was like being made by like, like the smart kids, you know, it was like mm -hmm. the smart kids in school were coming out. There was a lot of sort of like, 
it was open to anybody. It was like, it was a completely open forum. And that was, a, it was a super, like super democracy. You know, it was like anybody can do this and it's, but it's about being kind of like conscientious. It's about like, you know, being responsible to like your, your, your friends and yourself. And it's not about getting like effed up, you know, I thought that was really good. And it's like, but if you want to get effed up, who cares? Go ahead. You know, <laughs> do, do it, you know, yeah. be that. And it's like, whatever. But hardcore was like, you know, it's like what D Boone said about punk rock, like punk rock's whatever we wanted it to be, you know? So that's sort of what hardcore was an extension of, but it was just like for people like, you know, who had really strong voices in hardcore, specifically somebody like Ian McKay to be always talking the way he did. I thought that was really cool. I was just like, this is really good. This is like, this is offering a real good alternative and you can do whatever you want with it. You're still young, whatever. And it's like, that to me was like such a strong voice. And that's hardly ever talked about besides all the other kind of buffoonery. And also the song. So in like these hardcore documentaries, it's like, play me, play people like how great those songs are. Play In My Eyes. In My Eyes is like a masterpiece. You know, play that song. You know, <laughs> this is like, for play Rise Above, play whatever. It's just like, there's like this songwriting in the hardcore is just like, there's so many good songs. I wonder know? if Ian and could even me, say that's that like, That's what it's about. It's not about just sort of like, you know, it's not just about the attitude or whatever, the ideology or whatever. It's like, to me, it was like, it was, a, it had to have really good music, had to have really good songs. All those, all those first Discord seven inches. Yeah, those youth, the youth brigade tracks on, on Flex Your Head. Incredible. You know, incredible. But I think that's like, why we did that band, uh, Demolished Thoughts band at, at South by Southwest. It was yeah. all about that it was all about like okay we're like older guys now but this is what we grew up with and this and i i just wanted like this is a catalog of songs that i think are super good you know and that's what it was but i think like you're one of the few people that like you know i don't even think ian would acknowledge how good like he will like obviously but like it's not like he was going around in fugazi being like yo can someone introduce me to steve lecky you know the vial like shouting out the vial tones on stage you know you're, like you were the guy that was doing that, you know, and like, and all respect to Ian, because obviously he, he's a really smart guy and a, an incredible voice, you know, and like, you know, an amazing person to punish yeah. about music too. But like, at the same time, like you're yeah. the guy that's going out championing like, like random Finnish hardcore bands. Like, you know, you're, you're the guy that was kind of like went, giving this place a platform. There was some, there was a band that did a seven inch in um, Seattle called Soldier, S O L G E. Yes, yes. Like, it's like, it's super, it's like, it's like, that's the, that's the, and man, that was such a hard, hard to find seven inch. And I remember like doing a Sonic Youth gig like in Seattle. And that was just like, that I had, to, I had to sort of call it out. I was like, does anybody here have the Soldier seven inch? Just <laughs> <laughs> like super no response from the audience. It was like a month later, it arrives in the mail. That's awesome. Some kid. He's, just, he's like, I was at that concert. Yeah. You know, it's like, I know those guys. I had, you know, I have, I have a couple copies of that record and you know, here you go. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. That was awesome. That's awesome. Do you have that kid's address still? Uh, I probably do. Okay. Let's, let's, let's send him some emails. <laughs> um, I remember being on tour in Australia and uh, Roland's band was like playing a lot of gigs with, with us in, in the nineties. And he, Kids were like he was like because Rollins is a big record collector, obviously. Oh yeah. And so he, uh, I remember him singing on the stairwell like at some venue, and like he was just, first boys next door, seven inch. I was like, dude, where the where'd you get that? 
you know, that's like, you know, super nugget from like, you know, pre-birthday party, like yeah. Australia. First pressing. You the know, gig only seven inch? Like, or- yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, where'd you, you know, where'd you get that? He's like, oh, uh, some kid just gave it to me. You knew I was into it. <laughs> I was like, all right, man. Well, you know, like. <laughs> Says the guy who got a soldier seven inch in the mail. Lucky day. Lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I got a soldier seven inch in the mail. <laughs> uh, Thurston, I've kept you for uh, an incredibly long time. And I would just want to impose upon you that one day. Would you come back and do a part two? Yeah, totally, man. Because um, we barely we barely scratched the surface. Like I haven't even uh, brought up the awkward time okay. when I first met you. So, <laughs> okay, yeah, we got to go. We got to do that. So, yeah, let's do part two. Thank you so much, man, for coming on the show. Thanks, Damien. Thank you, Thurston, for coming on the show. And you can hear right there, we got room. We got room for an entire spinoff podcast just with Thurston Moore. I could I could talk to him for for like twelve more parts just about the fast and the steel tips. Oh my gosh! Oh, got to, got to get a lot of bands uh, talked about that I've wanted to talk about on this podcast for a while. We're gonna have a good episode of Footnotes coming up. Footnotes, of course, the the other podcast where we analyze each of these Turn Into Punk episodes hosted by myself and Chris O'Toole. We got a lot to get into this week with this Thurston Moore thing. Oh my gosh! Oh. Oh, thank you again to Matthew O'Donohue, Omnibus Press, Ecstatic Peace Library. They got a lot of great books out there on that that uh, company. You know, I'm just reading the damn book they put out. There's so many books, so many books. I think they actually even put out the New Wave Encyclopedia Volume Two way back when in 1982, which is really what I have to credit for for uh, knowing about all these weird, obscure, nerdy bands. I would just sit there and read that thing. That thing was like the Bible to me. So once again, Omnibus Press, thank you so much for making that happen. And Tristan, and Matthew again, and everybody, everywhere, thank you very much. Next week on the show, John Jughead Pearson of the band Screeching Weasel. Uh, So that is next week on the program. It's going to be a great episode you know, we're covering we're covering everything here at Turn It Punk. We're covering all the offshoot genres that came out of punk rock. And so we'll have lot more, lots more great guests in the near future. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this. Uh, gosh, I love this episode. All right. Thank you. Love you. See you next week. Oh, and sign your organ donor cards, please. Please. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.